Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch new episodes of Grey's Anatomy Thursdays at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi again, and welcome to the New Books and Latino Studies, a channel within the New Books Network. I am your host, Tiffany Gonzalez. Today on the program, we have Dr. Sonia Hernandez, an associate professor in the Department of History at Texas A&M University, and Dr. John Moran Gonzalez, a professor of American English Literature at the University of Texas at Austin. They are my guests on today's podcast, and they will talk about their new anthology, Reverberations of Racial Violence, a Critical Reflections on the History of the Border, and if my listeners are wondering, you can purchase the edited anthology from UT Press's website, where they also offer discounted rates. Benvenidos, and welcome to the New Books and Latino Studies. Thanks for taking the time to chat with me today. How's everyone doing? Hi, Tiffany. Thank you for having us. Yes, great to be here. Thank you so much. I'm so excited. So a typical style that I really like to start off any of these conversations is kind of getting y'all to talk about yourselves. Um, about your upbringing, your personal and professional background. Sonia, why don't you start? Thank you for that question, Tiffany. It's a pleasure to be here with you and everyone else listening in. Well, I'm from the Rio Grande Valley, and so there's obviously a personal connection for me, not only with respect to um, reverberations of racial violence, but also um, in just my my other my other works. Um, so I am interested in the intersections of gender and labor in the U.S.-Mexican borderlands region, broadly speaking, um, uh, for the most part, late 19th century uh, and the first part of the 20th century. Um, And I'm also interested in, um, especially now as um, I've been involved with Refusing to Forget, which I'm sure we will talk about in a little bit, um, just the the role of um, the state in encouraging and participating in um, in violence through its uh, numerous agents like the Texas Rangers and other members of law enforcement um, with respect to um, the Mexican origin community um, and also looking at it from a gender and more uh, transnational or greater Norteño uh, context, if you will. And so that's a newer work that I'm doing 
um, uh, right now. Um, but my my first two uh, my first book uh, dealt with looking at women's labor contributions in Nuevo León, Tamaulipas, and South Texas during the Porfiriato and up through the Mexican Revolution period and the um, decades um, following the revolution, uh, and looking at uh, forms of labor activism, which then led me to finish this new book um, entitled For a Just and Better World that looks at um, anarchist expressions within an emerging feminist movement uh, in the Port of Tampico with connections to to other ports of entry and certainly across Texas in the 1920s and 1930s. So uh, like Sonia, I grew up in the lower Rio Grande Valley in Brownsville specifically, and uh, really came to uh, the my field of uh, Latino, Latina, Latinx literature um, through a round, somewhat roundabout way. I first started off uh, looking at uh, post Reconstruction uh, national allegories and uh, included a chapter on Maria Amparo Ruiz de Burton. So looking at California in the 19th century. But then uh, my, that, and that became my second book, but my first book was about uh, the emergence of Mexican-American literature during the 1930s, uh, you know, as a counter discourse to the Texas Centennial uh, at the time in 1936. So really with, uh, with that work, uh, I was looking at the way Mexican-American intellectuals responded to the aftermath of uh, this earlier period and the violence uh, directed towards uh, Mexican origin folks at that time. And so I look at this period as one in which writers are looking for an alternative strategy uh, to protect uh, civil rights, and at the same time linking uh, the creation of this literature to a social movement, right? So in other words, the literary aspect was but one dimension of a much larger kind of movement to uh, for civil rights that, that became uh, embodied and institutionalized by the League of United Latin American Citizens, or LULAC. So... Um, uh, you know, and from there, I've gone on to do a number of uh, edit a number of critical uh, reference anthologies uh, about uh, Latinx literature, and uh, and with refusing to forget, I'm uh, beginning to cultivate an interest in the kind of uh, in environmental dimensions suggested by that. Thanks, thanks for sharing. It really seems, I mean, from both of y'all, uh, from the RGV or South Texas for those listening. And for myself, someone that comes from Texas, we know these, these histories from when they're passing down from our histories, especially the histories that you write about in this anthology and you're producing for the public. But given that y'all are from the region of South Texas or the, the Rio Grande Valley, why this particular story? How did this come about? I'm wondering if you can tell, tell us a little bit why this particular topic in particular John, you want to start off with that? Uh, sure. I mean, I think first off, it, it really is worth uh, mentioning that um, I didn't learn about uh, these stories growing up. 
And even though I'm, I'm from there, right? I mean, all my uh, K through 12 education was in the Valley, but never did I hear about such incidents, except potentially in passing in references to the bandit wars, a kind of far off and forgot, largely forgotten kind of incident. But, you know, it, it didn't seem anything that was relevant to uh, uh, my daily life or that of my family. Um, and, and so I really didn't <laughs> learn of these things until graduate school. And uh, so I wondered why, uh, why, uh, why didn't I know about this? Uh, you know, why weren't there any, uh, why wasn't this taught in the public schools? Why wasn't this otherwise commemorated? Because as, as we know, these were incredibly formative moments for the region. And uh, so really, it was stemming out of that question, why have we forgotten collectively? And of course, this does not apply to the scholars and, of course, the descendants, uh, family, familial descendants who have always kept this memory alive. I mean it in terms of a, a generally known fact at the level of, of public discourse that uh, is acknowledged as having a, a, a great impact, as well as, of course, being a great injustice. I would have to uh, agree with John with respect to not uh, being exposed to sort of the, 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 the full um, history related to this dark chapter um, in, in our state's uh, history, the 1910-1920 period. Um, although I remember growing up um, listening to some of the corridos that, or Mexican folk ballads that my father uh, would play on like Sunday afternoons when we were barbecuing as a family. And, you know, for example, like uh, El Corrido de los Tequileros that deals with the Prohibition era, you know, border issues. Um, and El, El Corrido de Gregorio Cortez, um, the, the ballad of Gregorio Cortez. And I remember my father talking about Los Rinches, right, as the Mexican origin community. Um, you know, that was the term used by the community um, uh, whenever they were talking about the Texas Rangers. And so I had sort of gone a little bit uh, uh, in terms of um, what I would later discover being a, a pretty notorious um, history um, related to the Texas Rangers. Um, but in terms of, you know, the, the, the in-depth uh, uh, histories of um, state violence and of you know of the the fact that these state agents were not you know these rogue agents acting on their own that the fact that they they followed in many cases um, orders from up above um, leading all the way to to the governor um, you know that fuller account I wasn't exposed to that until much much later later um, in in grad school and certainly. Um, you know, uh, during my my you know early participation with uh, with refusing to forget, um, especially um, after being introduced to some of the um, some of the descendants uh, um, through uh, Professor Monica Munoz Martinez, um, who had collaborated with several families who had confided in her and shared their personal archives um, uh, in attempts to keep that. 
uh, that that those histories alive, as as John pointed out to earlier. Yeah, you're y'all are absolutely correct, and that's for someone being trained in Texas, right, through literature and the production of this in this anthology and becoming well known with Dr. Monica Munoz's work, right, The Injustice Never Leaves You. This is how we, the public, right, even their communities have learned about these injustices of state-sanctioned violence going on in the early 20th century. Why is it, do you think, that these histories have been omitted or overlooked of this racial violence against Mexicanos? Well, um, if, if I may, uh, it, this was, I mean, going back to um, the Canales hearings back in the spring of 1919 that exposed the indiscriminate uh, way in which the rangers, um, you know, participated in in, uh, in atrocities, you know, committed against the predominantly Mexican origin population. Um, you know, going back to, to 1919, those transcripts were supposed to be made public, um, but it was, you know, frankly, it was quite embarrassing. Uh, the, the state um, would obviously not want this to be part of the official record because it really exposed the Rangers for, you know, for what they were. Um, and basically they were a terror organization and there's plenty of evidence. And we can just look back to the 1600 pages that comprised that Canales hearing. Um, and so um, this is obviously, you know, something that, um, that uh, was not only, um, you know, hidden and, and silence, uh, but that the, in the, the, the total opposite um, would happen in terms of celebrating uh, the Rangers as part of the, you know, the, 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 the true and only uh, history of the founding of Texas. Um, and so um, the the entire opposite happens. You know, certainly by the twenties and thirties, and there's a sort of celebration of Texan identity and the, the Texas uh, um, story of you know of of, of growth and development um, having to do uh, with the uh, with the Rangers and but the Rangers as these heroes, um, not as um, you know agents of terror. Uh, particularly racial terror. So uh, I very much agree with what uh, how Sonia just uh, laid it out, um, and I would add that uh, one uh, one other aspect of it was that um, uh, one of the reasons uh, this information was what uh, was buried really was. Because at, in the moment, it did represent a profound embarrassment for the state in the sense that it, it made Texas look like the Wild West, you know, and with uh, agents, you know, seemingly acting independently of central authority and, you know, more like vigilantes than, than proper state agents who engaged in due process. Um, and so, uh, of course, they had tacit approval to do what they did. But nonetheless, the kind of narrative was that, you know, Texas could no longer afford to be 
looked like a backwards uh, state, right? It was bad for business, uh, bad for its image. And so, uh, you know, it was a big PR problem. So the, so the response was to simply bury it. Um, kind of, you know, more long-term, well, uh, really, I think uh, it, even as it was this kind of PR problem in the, in the short term, it also was about uh, ensuring that uh, the, the, the legitimacy of these actions, that is, of the results, would, con- would stand, right, rather than having them be continuously challenged by the illegitimacy of, of the way uh, things turned out. Uh, you know, these also had to be uh, 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 suppressed in order to, you know, legitimate uh, what had happened, what had occurred as a result. And so that is the kind of uh, uh, disenfranchisement and uh, uh, terror uh, unleashed uh, against uh, the communities, uh, Mexican-American, Mexican communities were part, a structural part of continuing white supremacy in the region. And so you couldn't, you couldn't completely delegitimate it. It had a, you know, a useful state function as it were. Um, So uh, hence it disappears from any public school curricula. uh, And uh, there is a general decades long, uh, underdevelopment of higher education, uh, mostly because uh, the business interests of the region, you know, uh, don't want an educated workforce. They don't need it. They don't want it. And uh, so I I think uh, both in the short term and in the long term, uh, it was in the interests of the states and uh, corporate interests and white supremacy uh, to make sure these facts never saw the light of day. I totally, I totally agree with that. I mean, uh, knowing these stories creates a spark that I firmly believe within communities, within educators, within professors such as yourselves, researchers, and that spark is what led to, I believe, knowing y'all both, refusing to forget is, if that's correct. Now, I would like to know a little bit more of that background. How did that spark of knowing, of researching these histories? and trying to teach these histories in universities in Texas, how did Refusing to Forget originate? Can Sonia, can you start off with that discussion for me? Sure, yes. Um, and th- thanks for that question. So, you know, Refusing to Forget, um, which is a public history you know, nonprofit um, organization um, project. It started out as an idea, as a collaboration. Um, Some of us um, had been planning, um, going back to 2010 here, some of us had been planning um, events, you know, conferences on the centennial of the Mexican Revolution. I remember inviting our RTF um, colleague, Dr. Ben Johnson and Dr. Trini Gonzalez to speak on uh, on uh, the events uh, uh, around the Mexican Revolution, along the border. Um, and, you know, I'm not, I don't really remember uh, when uh, you and I started uh, 
talking, uh, John. Um, but by 2014, 2013, 2014, um, we all met uh, in a San Antonio Knox, Texas vocal conference. And we began to talk about how best to, um, uh, you know, hold, uh, organize uh, public events that took into account um, the voices and the histories um, and the goals of many of the descendants of the victims of the 1910-1920 period of violence. Um, and uh, this is where we also began to um, converse with Dr. Monica Munoz Martinez, who had um, been in conversation with many of these families um, as she was writing uh her book, The Injustice Never Leaves You at that time. And uh, we began to plan on how to best mark these upcoming centennials, the centennial of the Mexican Revolution, uh, the um, centennial of the Canales hearings of first state-led investigation into Texas Ranger violence, which then, you know, eventually led to um, a, a, a major exhibit at the Bach Bullock History Museum, and uh, then the NEH-sponsored conference, which then led to this anthology that we're talking about today. So it it sort of um, happened, um, uh, you know, in a in a, a very rather quickly. Uh, and uh, but but we always sort of going back to your question about you know why we wanted to do this, and we wanted to honor the voices and the memories of those. Um, who had, uh, you know, who lost their lives during this this uh, period in our state's history, and we also wanted to uh, validate the efforts of the descendants of, of those victims of families um, who made it, uh, a, you know, a point to uh, preserve those family archives and uh, to, you know, to 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 not forget. They refused to forget what had happened to their loved ones, uh, many, uh, many of whom never got to um, bury their, um, their loved ones. There was no, uh, there was no real, you know, uh, closure um, in, in the form of, 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 a, uh, of a funeral, of, of some kind of gathering. Uh, in many cases, not until uh, the gatherings, uh, again, going back to these public events that we organized, uh, it wasn't until um, some of these families um, got together at historical marker unveilings, as in the case of uh, the historical marker that we unveiled back in um, uh, 2018, sorry, pre-COVID here, um, you know, the families of the Longoria and the Bazan uh, families um, came together with other community residents and, and educators and, and, and students. Um, and of course, uh, refusing to forget was there. And that was for, for many of them. I mean, that was the, the only moment um, or the first moment where they actually came together um, in, in, you know, to reflect uh, upon those, um, you know, horrific murders. Um, so, you know, all this to say that refusing to forget has made it a central objective to honor the voices of, um, of, of, you know, the stories of the victims and the voices and the efforts 
uh, of the, the family, the descendants of those victims. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. And uh, since Sonia has covered uh, the origins of RTF uh, so well, uh, I'm just going to add something about the context of the moment in which we were coming together in 2013, 2014. And uh, it, because it very much relates to the title of the anthology, um, uh, you know, the reverberations of racial violence part. And the reverberation uh, was that was that, in fact, what was what occurred back then uh, a century ago was occurring now that was still occurring. And uh, so, you know, 2013, 2014, this is the moment of Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown and uh, Sandra Bland. And the, it was it was it was the uh, incarceration of uh, kids in Yaleras, right along in detention centers along the border. So what w- what we saw was was this kind of uh, uh, continuance, as it were, or this echo uh, of uh, state uh, violence against communities of color that. You uh, really, I think, prompted us to move from where we were in our academic work, right, um, uh, to move to to move this to a larger public forum and sphere of discussion, uh, because scholars have known about about these in- incidents for decades and have written about it. But once again, it seemed to me the whole mission of refusing to forget was to bring these incidents back to public consciousness and therefore dialogue about it at a much a larger level beyond the ivory tower i agree and bringing them to the public forum i'm wondering john was there any pushback from the public i know that y'all did a um an exhibit in collaboration with the bullock museum there in austin texas but i'm wondering if the what did the public have to say or was it just smooth sailing from there on once it was brought to the public in that type of presentation, public-facing presentation? Uh, Absolutely. Uh, You know, uh, 
the exhibit uh, Life and Death uh, on the Border, 1910 to 1920, ran for the first three months of 2016 at the Bob Bullock uh, State History Museum here in Austin. And um, the reception was was really fantastic. I mean, we had worked as historical consultants uh, and experts with uh, the, the great staff and director uh uh, of uh, the Bullock Museum, who were quite eager to stage this. And uh, we had anticipated there might be some uh, negative reaction from certain quarters. Um, it, all, to, to be truthful, that never really materialized. Um, but I have a couple of thoughts about as to why not. Uh, well, because I think if this had been held even a year later, right, in 2017, uh, we might have gotten a much different reception. And, uh, of course, I'm alluding to the, uh, to, to the, uh, the way uh, who was elected president in, in fall of 2016. So, uh, but the other thing that I, I think, though, the, the reaction, though, that we most received, and I I think we we were certainly most gratified by was that of uh, that of descendants, that of uh, community members who were incredibly um, thankful that this story had finally been told, right, or that they finally became aware of this story. Um, and and it's the sort of thing that I think the kind of question of uh, racialized state violence has always been of concern to communities of color, even if they didn't have specific encounters of this within their families, right? Or, or, or you know, there was always a kind of generalized fear. And I think what the exhibit did was able to, people were able to kind of point to like, oh, this is why there, you know, this is why we're always, you know, cautious um, around the cops. You know, this is why we've got a fear of law enforcement, and uh, because because there was a kind of generational trauma, you know, was passed down, uh, and uh, even as it was reinforced by actual lived encounters. Uh, so I think communities were grateful the story was being told to be able to kind of name uh, why this fear was there, and I think also as a potential uh, uh, avenue for seeking recognition of this injustice from the state. So in knowing these histories in public facing and knowing that Texas history is a requirement in the state of Texas, even in middle school, not just in higher ed, but I'm wondering, has there been pushback in higher ed, you know, in the college classroom, from both of y'all teaching these histories from students that, you know, perhaps have been so prideful of knowing their heroes of Texas history, but now knowing the state sanctioned violence kind of criticizes or pushes back on this heroic narrative of the Texas Rangers. Has there, has there been any changes within teaching this, this history, this new history um, to those students? Um, if I may, in my, uh, in my, my classes, you know, both undergrad and grad uh, level, I haven't uh, witnessed 
you know, in, in intense resistance to this history. And but one of the things that I usually do before I cover this material is I say, um, when I'm done lecturing, I will share my opinion with you on these matters. But I'm going to talk to you about these moments in our history um, from a factual evidence-based perspective. And I think I think when when students um, see because I share excerpts from the Canales hearings, and I also um, you know alert them to the fact that these hearings have been digitized and they're available through the Texas State um, Archives website. Um, and so it's really difficult to argue, um, you know, when you have so much evidence in front of you. And I think it's also important to um, talk about the complexities of uh, when we talk about, you know, ranger violence, uh, for example. I mean, there are other forms of state violence, but let's just focus on um, uh, ranger um, abuse of power. And so when you share with students, you know, with, uh, with evidence, right, with, um, uh, with source material about how one ranger um, could walk into a uh, courthouse and go into the chambers of a circuit judge in Falfurias, Texas, during this time period, and pistol butt uh, or pistol whip, I should say, um, uh, a judge um, in that manner for complaining about how uh, this particular ranger had taken two Mexican uh, prisoners from the jail cell uh, to take matters into his own hand. When that could happen, it's pretty, number one, it's it, it just makes you think of what that ranger could do with an ordinary resident. Uh, this, and number two, it also shows how, you know, you know, in this case, we are focusing on ethnic Mexicans as the community hit hardest during this time period. But we can also point to examples of how uh, non-Mexicanos uh, um, also faced uh, uh, violence at the hands of Texas Rangers. Um, so when when we we confront this history in that way that, look, there is plenty of evidence that for the longest time was silenced and was hidden, um, it's really difficult to argue. At least that's been my experience. And you'll find, uh, you know, uh, students just like, you know, folks from the community or from you know, that, that um, uh, may attend these public talks or, you know, that send you the occasional email saying, you know, this is, this is just, um, you know, a whole bunch of lies, you know, you're going to get that once in a while. But I think at least it's been my experience that the, that the majority of folks um, who are exposed to this history um, in this way, uh, that, you know, it's grounded in, uh, in, in substantial, you know, evidence uh, of all sorts, right? Including also um, oral histories um, uh, that that it is, it's just 
so difficult to refuse. It's so difficult to argue against um, against that. That would be, um, again, that's based on my experience teaching this material um, in my classes. Um, I, I would just add that because I'm a literature scholar and uh, not a historian, um, I don't have a course, you know, that is, as it were, st- structured about uh, uh, history per se. Um, yes, I do literary history, but it, it, it's very much as how uh, experience is mediated through texts, through, you know, uh, and through aesthetics. So, uh, and while I do uh, uh, at times talk about uh, these matters, um, I am very much, you know, it's, it's not, as it were, the, the kind of mainstay of what I teach in the classroom. Um, and, and so I can't say that I've, I've gotten, uh, you know, uh, I've, once again, I mean, the general reaction from students when I have taught this material has been, uh, ha- has been, why didn't we know about this before? Um, and, and uh, not a, a kind of, uh, you know, anger about it. So, yeah, so that's been my experience. It's hard. If, if, if I may, just quickly, Tiffany. Uh, Absolutely. You know, it, I think it's now we're faced with, uh, with a real, um, you know, gosh, uh, problem, just an unfortunate situation with respect to the K through 12 system. Right. Um, with uh, uh, with these uh, laws that um, are not or have really nothing to do with CRT, with critical race theory, but have all to do with censoring educators in in telling these these uh, more inclusive histories that reflect that I believe should reflect the real demographics of this state. So it's a different situation. It's a much more challenging situation for K through 12 educators than for, for those of us in higher ed. And who knows, right? I mean, that may change um, given the, 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 the politics um, that we face now, um, educational politics, if you will. But um, it's a much more uh, challenging situation for our colleagues in the K through 12 system. But it's, it's, this is history that... I mean, goodness, if our children are young enough to experience racism, uh, why shouldn't they read about it in, in, a, in such a way that is a constructive, in a constructive manner uh, that will help them uh, better understand contemporary issues, contemporary challenges? You cannot do that in a vacuum. Um, everything has a history. Everything has a longer lineage. And if I, I might editorialize as well for just a moment, uh, I mean, it, one of the great ironies is uh, the the is the recent found concern by uh, politicians over material educational material that may cause discomfort uh, to them. Well, nobody was really concerned about the discomfort of students of color for decades uh, when they were being tossed taught racist uh, and sexist material uh, in the school system. Nobody apparently cared about that or not enough. Y'all are speaking some truth today, and I really enjoy it because it's true. As John, as you so so nicely ended that, was that nobody really worried about what students of color and their lived experiences and their family 
this generational trauma, right, of why they weren't being taught their histories in K through 12 or in college um, until recently um, with y'all's work and the work for, for the past 20 years from other Chicano Latino scholars that are bringing injustices to light. And I really, you know, I just want to thank y'all for the continued work that y'all are doing with Refusing to Forget, for bringing forth this anthology. I know it must have taken so much time and effort and away from families, uh, your families, pardon me, um, to produce these histories and these communities to rectify the injustices of the what has been done in Texas towards Mexicanos, Tejanos. We're towards the end of our episode, and I have so many more questions, but then if I ask all the questions, what will the readers then have left to read? Um, but I want to thank you, uh, Dr. Sonia Hernandez and Dr. Uh, John Moran Gonzalez for being on this episode today of Latino Studies for the New Books Network. Um, and to my listeners, thank you for listening to this episode, which featured Dr. Hernandez and Dr. Moran Gonzalez. Hasta la próxima. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.